Hello and welcome to Film Festival Reviews, a place for independent filmmakers and film lovers to stop by and listen in on some great conversation. This is Christina Kotlar, your host, and I'm wrapping up a week of whirlwind activity that began with a soaking nor'easter. And while I was at the Philadelphia Film Festival in the middle of the University of Pennsylvania campus, we all heard about that tragic violence on another campus not very far away in Virginia. I took the train down to the Philadelphia Film Festival Monday and saw two films that coincidentally center around the environmental catastrophe, an underground fire burning for 40 years in Centralia, Pennsylvania. This is the heart of coal mining country and this fire was a trash fire that caught on the anthracite coal and has been burning for 40 years. I know my grandfather worked in the coal mines in that area, so uh, both these films hit a chord in the history about that area and about what my grandfather would do. He never talked about it. So the first film is a short film, Dear Bill Gates by Sarah Christman. And it starts out simply enough with an email correspondence and it evolves into a poetic visual essay uh, talking about ownership and and who owns our visual history and culture which is turning out to be Bill Gates who's buying up millions of archival images mostly photographs home movies and storing them underground in what used to be a mining shaft or levels of mines and it's called Iron Mountain Archival it's a preservation and storage business and his um, image accumulation is Corbis. Uh, so this film could be considered experimental because it combines video and images from the internet and original and archival films, specifically on the Centralia underground mine fire. After that film, there was a town that was. This is truly is an environmental tragedy and it serves as a backdrop for a character study about a handful of people still living in a town that's long gone as the government decides to solve the problem by getting rid of it, thinking or because now it's costing, it would cost over $600 million to put it out. This fire will eventually burn itself out, but that could be a hundred years from now. Anyway, the story centers around a young man who is disengaged from people, but goes on to great lengths to create an illusion of a community that no longer exists. Um, after the screening and when the rain finally stopped for a bit, I had a chance to talk with filmmakers Chris Perkle and George Rowland and the producer, Malinka Thompson-Godoy. Uh, so our conversation included their filmmaking and what they thought about the film festival experience that they had. Getting back into New York, I attended the Gen Art Film Festival closing night screening and saw He Was a Quiet Man. Christian Slater carried this film entirely through sheer will about an office co-worker contemplating going postal in an office environment. Uh, disturbing because even the more recent shootings of a co-worker afraid of losing his job. Let me tell you, coincidence and timing is everything these days. One of the things that impressed me about Gen Art is their technology, innovation, integration. They set up a text messaging voting system that didn't cost a text messenger and enticed the participation by awarding cool prizes. Hey, I figured it out and joined in. 
On a high note, Shark Water won Best Feature and was the first documentary to do so. The director, Rob Stewart, was already half a world away at the Jules Verne Film Festival in France. Gen Art is a tough film festival to get into, but it is right on target for providing access to emerging talent, and I look forward to more of their events. By midweek, I saw The Unnamed Zone in its New York premiere at the Ukrainian Film Club of Columbia University. Spanish filmmaker Carlos Rodriguez does not speak or understand the Ukrainian language, but his films speak so beautifully and eloquently surrounding another environmental catastrophe, the zone around Chernobyl. It'll be 26 years ago, April 26, that he equates this land to be Mordor in Lord of the Rings. Um, we still don't know what the repercussions will be. No one knows. It's scary, yet the children are filled with hope for their future and the future of our planet, which brings me to Earth Day. I believe it has to do with the color green. Back in school, I did a study on color and artists of the past, interpretations, actual effects, color hat on people and green triggers something in our brains sending out a feeling of euphoria. Some people like me are really affected by this color and the more you see it the happier you get and that's where spring fever comes from. I have it right now. As I celebrate Earth Day with coffee in the garden and digging in the dirt before the upcoming Tribeca Film Festival I just um, had one last thing about the planet Earth that I saw a couple of days ago. There's a um, segment uh, on 2020 Planet Earth 2007 really stuck with me and in the rainforest there's a bird that mimics its surrounding sounds. Sounds of the rainforest, then it learned a car alarm sound, and finally the sound of the chainsaw out there destroying its habitat. A chilling, a wake-up call. I look out for more festivals like Gen Art, uh, the Sundance channels, the green, and look forward to another Jules Verne Film Festival coming up in LA this year, whose motto is to explore and preserve our planet. Happy Earth Day. Enjoy the show. Georgie. Yes. Right. Georgie and Chris. Yep. Are. Is this the first film that you made together? Actually, no. Well, we met at film school in our uh, our first year. We essentially met in film school, like our first week there, and in a very real way, been collaborating kind of ever since. We um, collaborated on a couple short films, and, and Paul's here, and he also uh, scored one, actually one of my first short films. But this is our first kind of foray into first uh, foray into feature filmmaking. First documentary. The name of the film is called A Town That Was. Uh, you were from that area and you've heard about it. Great. I was um, born and raised in um, a town called Dunmore, Pennsylvania, a little suburb of Scranton, small town. And the word, you know, Centralia had been, you know, kind of bandied about through various people when I was a child. Um, I uh, heard the name and, and basically all I had was essentially was name recognition of the town. I, I knew that there was a mine fire beneath this town. And that was basically, you know, the extent of my knowledge. And uh, I was on the lookout for 
stories that resonated on a, like a more personal level. And uh, once I returned to the idea of Centralia via somebody who had mentioned it to me, um, I kind of probed it in such a way that I came to learn that the film spoke to me on not only a personal level, but also because I was essentially like a regionalist filmmaker and, and, and spoke to like my ancestry um, and the people that I was born and raised with. So from your point of view, you have a sense of place, and it's really interesting because Chris was talking about that he really didn't have a sense of place, but you're going more after the character or the character study for it. Well, I think one of the reasons why Chris and I collaborate so well is we complete each other. Um, you complete each other. And, no, in terms, of, in terms of the process. But most importantly, we kind of share the same sensibility. What you said back at the, the Q&A, which I thought was very, very interesting, was that the character, uh, he really thought, he saw the film and he saw himself the way he really sees himself. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's That was something, your approach. Actually, that was when I was making my thesis film, that I really discovered um, how much people carry with them their sense of self. To, uh, to their own screenings. I mean, I think the lesson sort of learned was if you portray people honestly and you really try to present them the way you honestly respond to these characters, generally speaking, they end up seeing themselves the way they see themselves in everyday life. So, I mean, John is an eccentric, and uh, John knows he's eccentric, and John knows that he's perceived to a degree by the rest of the world a as an eccentric. We hope that he would think that we presented him fairly and honestly, and that even though some people may respond to him and think he's crazy, you know, or, or however sort of far to the left of center uh, you might find him, we gave him a fair shake and gave him a fair platform and, and presented him honestly, and at the end of the day, he was thrilled with the film. And it was relieving to us and just sort of confirmed that idea. So the two of you decided to go this route with the film because, again, the, the premise of the film is there's this mine fire that's been burning for 40 years. It's a health hazard. It's an environmental issue. It's, it's burning anthracite coal down there. Right. It's a furnace down there, and that's why the town had disappeared. The town was bought by the government, and and the people moved out. But there are a few that stay. Well, there's been plenty of... Um exposés about the mind fire because it's such a romantic exotic platform for a movie but what Chris and I decided to do from the very uh, from the very get-go was to present a human face to that tragedy so what we tried to do was to use the fire as a backdrop but our main ambition was to tell a story about a human being uh, one man who lives through this every day we were first interested in Centralia, obviously because of the mine fire. I mean, that's you know the only reason anyone's ever heard of Centralia. Um, but what first attracted us was the idea that there were at the time 18 remaining residents, and we were curious as to why anyone would choose to live in a town that's abandoned and dangerous and on fire. It goes to great lengths to um, to maintain the illusion of a community where one really, by, by most standards, no longer exists. You know, the idea that John was choosing to stay in Centralia despite the fire and despite the lack of resources and despite the economic decline and the, and the lack of a social you know scene uh, the entire region's you know been in decline for 50 years and, and the economy I mean there's some of the poorest towns in, in the country are in the, in the coal region of Pennsylvania people don't want to leave these communities that they have these ties to for various reasons and we realized that trying to explore the reasons why John was choosing to maintain a home in such a um, unwelcoming environment spoke to 
the, the region at large. Mm -hmm. uh, not only that, uh, this is your Philadelphia premiere at the Philadelphia Film Festival, and we were talking about how on Saturday, when you first uh, had the screening, was that a fire drill? Yeah. Everybody out. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a lot of people that did come from Centralia to see the film, and you've got a really good response to it. And also today, one of the people who, uh, a woman came up to you and said that she lived there. Did you choose this festival knowing that you wanted to get this response because this is not your premiere in the festival circuit? What was your... Where did you start? Well, I mean, in like a, you know, in a great way, the festival chose us, and that made us, you know, that that thrilled us insofar as that we knew that you know many of the you know former Centralians would at least have an opportunity to come. And uh, I'd say at our first screening, there, there was approximately I'd say a dozen of former residents that were able to make it, and many of which came up to us at, you know after the screening and, and thanked us for the film. And, and there's really no kind of greater pleasure that you can get as a filmmaker to tell a story about a place, about a time, about a region, and have the people that actually lived through it um, feel as though you gave the story justice. In terms of our festival history, I mean, we always knew that uh, Philadelphia was one of the spots we wanted to, to ideally obviously get into and was going to be an important festival for us because we knew this was the closest festival to all of our, our subjects and, and the one that was in the closest proximity to audiences who would have any kind of vested interest in our story. So we, we knew this was going to be a, a big one for us and an opportunity to really show the film to, to people um, who, who cared about Centralia you know, and weren't just the blind audiences coming in to see this film that you know, hopefully resonate with them because it speaks to something a little more universal but was actually about uh, you know, their hometown or towns very much like theirs. Mm -hmm. We premiered in a, at a small festival in North Carolina and then the, the first big festival we were in was Cinequest in, in San Jose. And that was great, but we were looking forward to, to an East Coast festival where, where uh, the audience would have a little bit more of a home crowd advantage. And, uh, and you know, so we were excited. I mean, we had a huge turnout, you know, at the, at the Saturday show, and a pretty big one today considering the weather. But the, the Saturday was great, and we, you know, we basically packed the house, and it was a, you know, the biggest theater they had here, so we were, we were thrilled. Do they um, give you an opportunity to meet people who might be interested in, in distribution or television or things like that? Do they have anything like that? In, in terms of our, yeah, in terms of our industry experience, here, there, there hasn't been much of an industry presence that we felt since we've been here. We were only here for this weekend, but you know, usually, obviously, the weekends are the big times where people show up on um, opening weekend or closing weekend, depending on the festival. But we haven't actually encountered pretty much anyone who's actually um, in distribution or acquisitions uh, here. And also, we found this festival is very, uh, the, the, a lot of the venues are very spread out because it's Philadelphia, it's a big city. So there hasn't been the same sort of filmmaker community that we felt potentially in other festivals where we've had an opportunity to interact with more filmmakers. We felt a little bit more isolated. I mean, there have been events and stuff like that to bring people together. But CineQuest, for example, was in like a four-block by four-block area. So, I mean, you're running into the same people day after day, and there was like a filmmaker lounge where everyone kind of gravitated. This just felt a little bit more uh, diffuse. Whatever publicity department they have going over here managed to fill up two very, very large theaters, um, and we didn't get that turnout. You know, the other festivals we've been at. So, you know, I don't want to speak ill of them. They've done a wonderful job. You know, filling filling the seats. I would also just say that you know everybody here has been you know really terrific to us, and and this is something that we've always experienced in film festivals. I mean, the hospitality has been amazing, and, and, and the uh, people have been great. And like Chris said, it is a little bit more diffuse than you know we've been accustomed to in the past. Um, but at the same time, there there is kind of a community of filmmakers, of producers, of uh, sponsors um, that we were able to get together at various moments.
Hi, Malinka. You're one of the producers here. You're co-producing with Chris. That's correct. This festival was extremely successful with their website, which was I was very impressed by. I mean, it, it's just enormous, and it has links to every film, and then every film has its own page with a review section. You can find out how many people have put your film on their calendars. They have a five-star rating. Oh, I did. Yeah. I, a five -star I made some rating. comments. I, I noticed you had over 800 uh, hits. On we're, your... we're over nine. Yeah, when I, I left, when, when I left the hotel yeah. room, we were over 900. We were about almost close to a thousand hits. Yeah. And it has a synopsis. It even has photos that multiple photos. There's just a really well done website, and it really helps to have the community just be able to click on every film and see so much information about it. So that I, I really appreciate this festival doing for us. I mean, that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I have one more question for you. I know when we stepped out of the theater, though, you were saying that this film was a little lighter, um, the other one was a little darker at another theater. Is that, in your experience as going around to film festivals, is it something that you would advise other filmmakers to keep an eye out for? Well, it's something that I personally am very conscious of because, you know, we spent a lot of time and energy into having the film look a very specific way, and every projector is different. Every time we've seen it screen, it's, it's looked a little bit differently, and so I am very conscious of it. And I don't. I, I will try to see what I can do about it in the future. So it is something that I am conscious of. And one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, Jean Renoir, um, you know, like, I can't remember the exact quote, but um, you know, to paraphrase, I mean, he basically, essentially said in many times in interviews and articles that uh, you know, who cares about technology? In a lot of ways, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, it's you know, you're gonna have your distortion of the sound, you're going to have various things that might, you know, might translate differently from your initial conception, but at the same time, what, what matters most is the heart and soul of the film and, and, and the, the ideas that you're trying to project, and for the film to kind of not be, you know, projected in the exact light in which you initially thought of, to me, means so much less um, than the soul of the idea you're trying to um, allow people in to see. Well, I think you guys make a really wonderful team. There's a nice balance in that way. I see your point very much because you're spending a lot of money as a producer you know, to do it right. And at the same time, you know, if I, if I, if I didn't have people in, on my team that felt the same way I do, I mean, the film would be too, too, you know, much dirtier and so much less professional than it should be. I was just going to say, coming from a producing standpoint, obviously I'm more uh, aware of the aesthetic for the audience because, you know, obviously the creativity is there and the story is there and I absolutely know that the essence of the film is what it's about. The essence of the film is, here's an amazing story that I want the audience to see, but as a producer, I want them to see it the way Chris and George meant it to be seen. So for me... When I see a, a, a shot that's so dark that they almost can't make out the character, that the emotion in their face, or it, it changes it slightly, your, the reaction of the person that's watching that scene. And for me, I know that they chose a specific lighting, a specific uh, way that they were they were showing this person's face, so that you could read that emotion. If it doesn't come through on screen, then I, I feel a little bit like they're not. It's not doing them justice. So yes, I absolutely agree with George that the story is still there, and and the audience hopefully will get that out of it. But I 
would like it to be seen the way it's meant to be seen. Yeah. You know, I absolutely agree, and I, you know what? I would love to have Malika as a producer on my film because to keep an eye out, I can watch my back that way. But. I mean, I just say I think the bottom line is you, you know, you, you want to make sure that the reading of the film is not affected by technological snafus. And, you know, I mean, and if, if that comes across, then it, the bottom line is the film will play more or less the same. You know, it's like it's like producers here in music. You know, we end up hearing things that no one else is going to hear. You see things that no one else is going to see. You know, a lot of it is not that relevant to the way people are going to appreciate the film. But at the same time, I mean, there's some shots in the film where if it's too dark, you know, you don't see John at the end of that film in the last shot. You don't appreciate what we were trying to, you know, convey in that last shot. That's not good. And I think overall, it, it turned out really well. I'm so happy I did come down here. Um, Thank it wasn't, you so much. It wasn't a bad trip, except the, the railroads were a little flooded. But I uh, got here on time, and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys at other film festivals. Thank you so much, and thank you for uh, braving the weather uh, and making this all possible. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Okay. There you have it. Next week, I'm covering the Tribeca Film Festival as a guest contributor for Zoom In Online, www.zoomin.com. This is a great internet video channel for creative professionals. I checked it out and I had a great time at Sundance Film Festival hanging out with the people working at Zoom In. So they asked me to work with them on this and Uh, Look out for my blogs and podcasts covering the ins and outs of Tribeca, which already started for me. I went to a pre-screening of two films, The Letter That Was Never Sent and The 41st, recently restored with beautiful new prints from archives where they came from. Anyway, it was at Tribeca Cinemas and Peter Scarlett, executive director of Tribeca Film Festival introduced the films and stayed afterwards answering questions and talking about rediscovering these works that are rarely exhibited in the U.S. That's the kind of how to festival experience I love to start off with and we'll be looking for more. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>